broadcasting system and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds, as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October... Business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. Hi, everybody. This is Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs, and where we push the limits of our understanding, as always. We are Joe Landry and Nori Olford, here with you as your co-host for a new episode and a new season. As usual, we thank you all for joining us on the show, and we'd like to extend a big welcome to those of you who are tuning in for the first time. And what you just heard was a real blast from the past. <laughs> uh, that was the opening of the 1938 Orson Welles radio broadcast with CBS's Mercury Theater on the air. It literally scared quite a few people to their deaths by making them believe that planet Earth was being invaded by Martians, even though it was just part of the entertainment. So, hey there, Lori. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, Joe. Yeah, uh, pretty crazy how that whole thing uh, unfolded back then. It was meant to just be uh, sort of a joke, I guess, uh, a gag, uh, you know, just a way to uh, get people's attention to get them to listen in on a radio show. But it turned out to uh, cause uh, a good bit of panic for a few hours. Uh, there are reports of some folks committing suicide because they didn't want to be subjugated to the Martians. Eventually, it became obvious that the new the news flashes were just part of the drama, and, and you know there was no actual invasion. Of course, the CBS radio network had to do a whole lot of damage control afterwards, and uh, and this leads us into today's topic about first contact. Is humanity ready to find out that we are not alone in the universe? And more importantly, 
are we prepared to encounter an alien species on a large scale? Right. When we talk about people being ready for this first contact, we aren't referring to all of the individual accounts of sightings and abductions and visitations that, of course, have been documented and investigated by various agencies over the years. Uh, those, for the most part, have gone unverified. Uh, we still lack the hard evidence, the irrefutable facts, the confirmed testimony to say without any doubt that they are here. Uh, no, the first contact is a collective encounter involving most, if not all, of the human race. It is the witnessing by everyone of the arrival of extraterrestrial beings. Um, I guess much like how it was illustrated in Independence Day, the 1996 uh, Roland Emmerich movie. Um, it, it is a close encounter of the third kind for everyone in the world, all at once. Not just something that's seen by one person or by people somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. It is humanity itself making contact with alien life, which um, kind of reminds me of Revelation 1-7, where it says, uh, every eye will see Jesus when he returns. Yeah, yeah. It is something that will leave no doubt with, uh, with anyone that, that something major is happening. That something is changing in the world in which we live right before our eyes. Uh, it will be the smoking gun, the rock-solid, tangible proof that everyone wants to have about ETs being real and, and that they are here. The first contact is something that will leave no mystery or unanswered questions. However, it is proof that we also may wish we didn't have, um, depending on, well, the, uh, the aliens and, and what they may actually be like. And, you know, Laurie, I, I think it's fitting that we cover this topic for this week as the whole UFO question has just been brought up in a congressional hearing uh, just back on May 17th by the House Intelligence Subcommittee, uh, the first one since 1970. Uh, and this almost a year after the Senate Intelligence Committee had received the UFO report from the Pentagon and almost two years since they enacted the Department of Defense to track and analyze, uh, particularly, you know, with the demand for video footage. Now, over the years, the bureaucrats in Washington came up with some really terrible sounding names for the program. Um, as of now, it is the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> but it expanded the authority of the government's UFO program from just being under the Office of Naval Intelligence to being tied into the Undersecretary of Defense for Intel and Security the director of national intelligence and all the way up to the joint chiefs of staff. Yeah. Before that, it was called the unidentified aerial phenomena task force that went back to 2017. And prior to that, it was under the defense intelligence agency as the advanced aerospace threat identification program initiated around 2007 by Senator Harry Reid from Nevada to study the UFO incidents associated with area 51 that was the one hitted up by uh, Luis Elizondo, who is a pretty well-known UAP researcher. And you know, he's been on the History Channel a lot. Uh, so I, I don't know why they couldn't have just gone with Project Blue Book Part 2. <laughs> uh, you know, but I, I guess they're striving for more transparency. Well, yeah, exactly. They're trying to take the emphasis off the strange and metaphysical aspect of the whole sighting uh, hysteria. According to science reporter Charlotte Edwards with The Sun magazine, and dated June 14th, 2021, these titles and acronyms are, are meant to take away some of the stigma 
that has been associated with UFO reporting and to try to bring it all more in line with the mainstream, you know, more in line with the official narrative. And I think this shows a real seriousness on the part of politicians to investigate and studying them, um, as opposed to the usual denying of everything. Now, whether or not uh, that seriousness is genuine is a separate issue altogether. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be too quick to give kudos to the government on this change of, of emphasis. It's it's really just more of the same kind of talking points, as always. Uh, they still haven't given full disclosure. Scott Gray, the uh, um, was it the Office of uh, Naval Intelligence Director? Uh, he, he really did a lot of humming and, and hawing in that hearing about the identification of the UAPs and ultimately said that many of them may have unknown origins. But, of course, did not stress if he believed they were extraterrestrial, more so than some kind of weapon system from an adversarial country. So either he's deliberately trying to distract and convolute what's been learned about the phenomena with trite explanations, or he's trying to to hide what he knows is an actual national security threat. Um, if, If they don't know what they are, then they don't know if they're something to worry about. If they do know what they are, whether American or not, then they do know if there's something to worry about. Something tells me that they do think they are something to be worried about because they know they're not ours. And that is definitely something the U.S. government would find as being a problem, uh, being a security threat. That is, if it isn't ours and yet it is in our airspace. So, yeah, it was really an hour and a half of questions just being sidestepped and with the usual political jargon and verbosity uh, that leaves you wondering what they really just said and what they really just meant. Um, At one point, Congressman Andre Carson asked Scott Bray and Undersecretary of Defense Ronald uh, Moultrie uh, how they can assure us that they aren't merely focusing on events that can be easily explained and likewise avoiding those that are more difficult to explain, meaning do, do they try to dodge the tough questions? And the answer was a little bit of mumbo jumbo, uh, talking about the methods of collecting data and maintaining classification, you know, yada, yada, but not really giving any sense that they're going to acknowledge uh, the public's questions about the UAPs, especially the ones that can't be easily explained, like those uh, AA, uh, UAPs that are observed and recorded, uh, and from what we can tell, seem to completely violate the laws of physics. Uh, we would all like to know how that happens and, and what those things are. So they definitely do try to avoid dealing with the, the tough questions. Right. And this AIMSOG thing, you know, they actually had to rearrange some of the letters to make this an acronym you can pronounce. <laughs> um, but the whole paradigm already seems to be going in the right direction as it openly involves different offices within our intelligence community for the purpose of finding out more uh, on UFOs. Um, We'll just have to wait and see if they'll ever give full disclosure, right? So I know we try to steer away from conspiracy theory on this show and stay founded on what is factual and what is responsible or what is reasonable and, and what is plausible. But as it has been pointed out before, going all the way back to the time of Roswell and Project Blue Book, the government has had a real concern uh, about not only our security vulnerability, but also about preventing mass panic. And that entails the control of information, which was often just flat out denial. So I think that 
it, there's still a case today. I, I don't think anything has changed in the way of keeping it top secret. And of course, we see that uh, is a subject that is out in the open. People have discussions about extraterrestrial life all the time. And it's not just a bunch of lunatics on the street or obscure academics it, uh, who are way out in left field. It's it's normal people everywhere who genuinely want to know if it can possibly be true. Yeah, we're all wondering that. And it is evident in the popularity of all the TV documentary programs, you know, like Ancient Aliens, uh, UFO Hunters, The Unexplained, uh, UFOs, The Lost Evidence, the radio show Coast to Coast AM, and not to mention all of the podcasts, especially this one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it is on the minds of, uh, of almost everyone. Um a lot of people anyway. So what happens if we have a first contact where no one can reasonably deny that it is real, that aliens are real? Well, um, many questions will be asked, such as who are they? Where are they from? Why are they here? What will people do if they hear an announcement on the radio, you know, interrupting their music and saying strange objects and lights are appearing all over the world? Uh, what, what if it is preceded by a bizarre, a bizarre uh, kind of interference in television broadcasts and internet and cell, cell phones as the spaceships get closer to Earth? Um, how will people react? Uh, the arrival of alien beings will be a terrifying and yet exciting experience all at the same time, and one that will really throw all of our perceptions into a tailspin. Yeah, I will indeed. Uh, you know, throughout our lives, we've learned that we are the most advanced and sophisticated species in existence. And whether you are an evolutionist or a creationist, uh, humans are at the apex in our worldview. But are we ready as advanced and sentient life forms with our own inherent arrogance, I guess you could say, uh, to experience this future phenomena? Are we ready for first contact? Well, you know, with the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast, they realized that a real panic safety problem um, that can occur. Uh, I mean, never mind what is portrayed in movies. People actually are going to run around and crash their cars and uh, and uh, run them into each other. They that event was one of real mayhem uh, because of for that moment, it was thought by just some you know, less than 50% that there was an actual alien invasion. But look at what happened. Sure. Uh, What if it was worse? Uh, What if it went on for a longer time? Uh, What if it was seen on TV and not just heard over the radio? I think a lot of us, you know, remember from 9-11 just how fear gripped us and made us want to head for the hills. Uh, We see that civil and societal order starts to fall apart. And that, of course, makes the situation even more dangerous and more difficult to get under control. Now, the question on everyone's mind will be, do they come in peace? An alien invasion, as depicted in every sci-fi story or movie, involves us being overwhelmed by their superior technology. Uh, They're able to do things that we can't, by very fact that uh, they had traveled across an ocean of stars to come here. So when we encounter them in their spacecraft, we know right away that we're dealing with a species that is more, much more advanced than us. And that definitely raises some real concern for everybody uh, everywhere, because it's basically just, uh, I guess we're just basically sitting ducks if they come here to be hostile. So science fiction author Alan Dean Foster has written novels about how life forms um, 
after becoming so much more advanced than humans and become so much more evolved, that they no longer have the need to engage in violent conflict and they're virtually incapable of it. Um, Gene Roddenberry sort of believed the same thing and it was seen to have been carried over into the Star Trek series, you know, with the the prime directive that they talk about uh, and the whole United Federation of Planets being this bastion and guardian of peace in the galaxy. I guess you can say that we, we hope so. We, we hope that is the case. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote on a similar theme in Childhood's End about a highly developed technological civilization and how it is, by definition, nonviolent. Um, well, that's a nice notion to ponder, and it was even thrown out in that 90s movie, uh, Mars Attacks. It is also a bit of a fallacy, as there are plenty of cases in history in which groups of people on the cutting edge of technology are actually quite warlike and imperialistic. You know, the, the Roman Empire was state-of-the-art during its apex. It's uh, in terms of technology and innovation, and, you know, they conquered other people with brutality. Uh, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Chinese, it was like that with all of them. And certainly the British Empire was a big on military expansion as well. Every advanced civilization has always been to command and conquer. It's uh, evolution at its finest, uh, the survival of the fittest, right? The, uh, the strongest and more equipped wins. So we discussed many times on our podcast about the ancient alien theory where we've shown the connection of the biblical God and, and others to be very hostile. Yahweh gave many commands to Joshua to go forth and take control of neighboring tribes by slaughtering everyone. And that meant uh, including women, children, the elderly, and their livestock. So some of the descriptions tell of the death tolls being into the very thousands. Um, so, we said before that this should not be the doings of a benevolent being uh, or deity, but it makes perfect sense that an extraterrestrial tyrant would give such orders. And so we have to wonder just how humanity would handle the realization that we are for sure not alone in the universe, whether the ET visitors are friendly or not. Uh, Carl Sagan actually wrote a novel back in 1985 about that, and it is titled Contact. Most of us know about this from its movie form with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey, but it plays out on his professional and personal belief <clears throat> that our first contact will be you know, very a very humbling experience in which people from all cultures will put their long-held dogmas into perspective and will reshape the po geopolitical landscape. It would be something that would alter our perceptions of ourselves and our world, and but it would also further our evolution. Um, ultimately, this would be a good thing, but there would still be tumultuous adjustments that could go on with us for quite a while. And we have seen that kind of anthropological paradigm exemplified in our own lifetimes. I mean, major changes do bring some unity, but as we've seen, they also bring about a lot of division. Right. Just with the COVID uh, pandemic, we witnessed and actually are still witnessing uh, sides being taken taken on the on the issue with people becoming more entrenched in their beliefs and kind of sticking with their uh, respective camps. So I can just imagine the level of disagreement about the meaning of our first contact, the religious and the political implications, some welcoming it and others fearing it and others denying and downplaying it. There is the potential for a whole of confusion and misunderstanding. And even if our very survival depends on it, 
the human race may still not be able to come to a collective uh, agreement. That's a good point. And it could come down to a scenario of social Darwinism by which survival depends on taking the most feasible and most adaptable courses of action in response to an alien presence. And those factors are variable based on the characterization of the first contact, you know, whether they come as friend or foe. Well, since we are living in a society that seems to be open and accepting of a new age of enlightenment and being kumbaya, uh, m- many believe that the arrival of extraterrestrials will be a beautiful thing, a time of harmony and even spiritual illumination, you know, something groovy. <laughs> yes, uh, the dawning of tranquility and metaphysics, uh, complete with all of the magic and unicorns <laughs> and colorful rainbows, everything being wonderful. All species of the galaxy coming together to live in peace and love. Um, you know, that would be nice. Yeah, I guess it would be. And we all definitely hope it is that way. But uh, you've read history. <laughs> um, like you mentioned, the great civilizations that have popped up here on Earth, the Romans, the Aztecs, the Mongols, all of them, really, they, they usually didn't show up to create a, 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 a Shangri-La. No, that's for sure. Right. And they were called empires for a reason. And that is because they were more advanced technologically than the other countries. And so they expanded their influences and advantages to those other places around the world. And they did so militaristic, militaristically. You know, the British, the French, the Russian, the Japanese empires in the last few centuries were all about their developed technology and their scientific breakthroughs and how they were applied uh, to their conquests and colonial enterprises, right? Right. Well, just look at the Middle Ages. Uh, It's loaded with accounts of people with better inventions like gunpowder and battering rams uh, not arriving in the the name of peace. Our our histories are full of it in, in every part of the world. Now, granted, we are talking about humans here. So, I mean, you can say, well, maybe aliens aren't like us in that way. Maybe they are truly not war lusting. But is there a chance that they are, or in the very least, do not have our best interest in mind? You know, it's hard to say. Uh, although when we learn about the stories and legends of people having encounters with powerful sky beams, whether they are abductions by greys, reptilians, or you know, just the ancient literary descriptions of the gods, there is certainly a constituent of terror that is involved. So you have to wonder why that is. And there are plenty of science fiction writers, you know, Robert Heinlein, uh, Arthur Toft, H.G. Uh, Wells, Isaac Asimov, who saw first contact as being an attempt by extraterrestrials to exterminate us. There's a ton of literature about that very idea. And a ton of movies, uh, War of the Worlds, Independence Day, V, Battlestar Galactica, you know, et cetera, et cetera. However, uh, there very well may be an advanced civilization out there that is very benevolent and want nothing more than communicate and share with us their thousands of you know years of knowledge. Uh, we brought that up a, a few months ago when we discussed the Palladians and the uh, mythological traditions tied in with their characteristics of goodwill. That would be the ideal contact scenario. However, our imaginations are abundant with the idea that they Uh, could come here to conquer and subjugate the human race. Like you said, we have a lot of books and movies that delve into that. So, Lori, we have to ask, are we prepared for something like that? Are we truly ready for first contact with alien life? And just to be clear, 
contact doesn't necessarily have to be their arrival here on Earth. It, it could simply be the reception of a radio signal that contains a message. And it's just the, the hard evidence uh, that there are indeed intelligent beings out there or which there is, there is no longer any reasonable doubt of it. Um, but are we, the human race, <clears throat> truly prepared psychologically and, and even spiritually? Um, I, I think to answer that, we need only look at our religious beliefs from all over the world. And we see that there is an almost ever-present doctrine that does detail the return of the gods. Well, it appears that our ancient ancestors were ready for it uh, because it happened to them, as we see in the book of Exodus, where Yahweh dis decides to descend upon Mount Sinai and make first contact with his people. So religious text mentions the return of the gods because the gods promised to return. And one of the most famous of those is laid out in a future event known as the second coming of Christ, as we find in Hebrews 9.28, that he... Jesus was sacrificed once to take away sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who wait for him. Well, I would say that Christians certainly do profess to believe in the second coming of Jesus. So does this mean that they are actually ready for it? And if they are ready for the return of Jesus, does this mean that they have some sort of mental preparedness for something also like the arrival of aliens? Well, I think that people may be religiously geared for the second coming, meaning they sit through sermons and Bible studies where pastors explain how scriptures support that belief, and they obviously profess it. But that's not the same as being what you might say spiritually ready, you know, having your soul prepared for an event like that, or having your, your life's priorities in order so that when it does happen, you've already lived through it in your mind. So I would say most folks believe in it and say they're ready, but truthfully, they're not. I mean, you remember hearing all about the uh, uh, eschatology and the end times prophecies and, and being told by many people, clergy and congregation members alike, that the return of Jesus will be soon. Many have said and still say that it will be in our lifetime. So you better be ready. Uh, it could be at any time. The, the rapture could happen at any moment. Yet none of us ever did anything to change our plans because of it. Yeah, really. You know, we never canceled any trips to Disneyland because we were expecting Jesus to come back. Um, after we would get out of the church service, we went about meeting people for coffee to discuss graduations, investments, home repairs, upcoming NFL games, uh, family vacations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, no one, at least no one who was normal, really came up with a pre-rapture plan or an emergency end times plan. Life just went about as normal, and we all just figured we'll deal with the second coming when and if it occurs. But we're basically assuming, even if just to ourselves, that it wasn't. Uh, but if it was, we had just to adhere to the gospel and follow what the Apostle Paul said in, in Romans 13, 14, to not gratify the desires of sinful nature. So you can see that by the simple virtue of believing in a future Armageddon doesn't mean you are facilitating a real prepared state of mind for it to happen. You're just accepting it on faith. Exactly. And doctrines vary about this second coming, which to uh, revolve around this notion of mass abduction rapture, uh, with it being 
pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation. So any one of those believers may end up being quite upset if the extraterrestrial Jesus returns during one of the three. Uh, so, you know, Joe, so many Christians are against the whole notion of alien life, at least most of the ones you and I know. But what they fail to realize is that the doctrine of the second coming is actually just based on older theology, which centered on the gods leaving us human beings and on the premonition that they will return in the future. It's an invasion. Uh, think about this for a moment, okay? We have scriptures that tell of a being who was who once visited here 2,000 years ago, who stated he was not of this earth, but was from above. He can't be killed, well, not permanently anyway, <laughs> and he then promises to return just as he is seen ascending up into the sky. He disappears beyond a cloud and is then gone. His followers believe exactly what he said about coming back, and they spread out all around the world, century after century, going around teaching about him and the judgment he will bring to those who have not accepted at the time he does return. That there's an entire book of, of the Bible devoted just to that return. And of course, that's the book of Revelation. Yeah, and many parts of it illustrate uh, what is a very was very strange imagery of this return of Jesus. Um, Revelation chapter 16 has seven angels pouring out seven bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. And in doing so, it causes the seas to become like blood. It causes sores to be afflicted upon people. It causes the sun scorching everything with fire. Uh, you have darkness falling upon the land. You have evil spirits coming forth that look like frogs, um, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, severe earthquakes, and the cities of the nations collapsing. It's almost like John the Evangelist was actually watching Independence Day at the cinema, <laughs> you know, like a big movie screen was somehow transported back in, into the time of uh, 95 AD on the island of Patmos. And he got a chance to check out a sci-fi flick. <laughs> I, I mean, really, bowls bringing forth complete destruction upon everything is a perfect um, depiction of what was displayed in that movie. I know what you mean. Like, was it allegorical? with things looking like upside-down bowls arriving over Earth. Uh, e even a passage where it mentions evil spirits that look like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon is something that conjures up impressions of um, alien greys or reptilians. Uh, we find with the fifth angel blowing his trumpet that a star falls from the sky and opens up the abyss that unleashes a battalion of demonic soldiers like into a plague of locusts. Funny that it's always a star, isn't it? Like uh, things don't just come from around the earth. It happens after something falls from the sky, which should tell you something. Um, these long-haired locusts with teeth don't really sound like locusts. Um, could they be alien beings landing here in pods, you know, em uh, emerging to, to wreak havoc after they crash into the earth? Um, it's quite eerie, and it scared me as a kid. You know, objects falling out of the sky, monsters coming out of the ground, crazy celestial events like the moon turning to blood, a third of the water on Earth becoming too bitter to drink, third of the forest destroyed, third of the ships uh, in the sea were destroyed. Um, but one thing is for certain, all of these things are scientifically proven to, to happen. Yeah, the only thing that we know for a fact that could be compared to this, as it is well documented, is an atomic explosion a nuclear holocaust. 
And if and if not that, then an asteroid or you know some other type of mega weapon that is unknown to us, but might be you know something an advanced ET civilization could possess. And we get the same impression with Jesus telling his disciples in Matthew 24, 29, 31, that they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Again, these are descriptions of cosmic occurrences, incredible and unspeakable things that are quite cataclysmic and that bring devastation, not tranquility. And it's only in this modern age with the advent of nuclear weapons that we have uh, even the conception of the capability for something on that magnitude. Before that, it was only something that could have been uh, relegated to the imaginations of uh, poets and playwrights and, and authors. But an advanced civilization present here on Earth in the distant past would have had that uh, kind of weapon capability way back then. Uh, it may just be more misunderstood technology, and it may be that these clouds of heaven are merely ships flown by angels, and angels who are really nothing more than alien pilots. Uh, even the Apostle Paul said something that makes you think of this in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 16 to 17, with, for the Lord himself shall, defend, uh, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of, of God. So we've touched upon in our episode last summer about the return of the alien gods, how some of these biblical prophecies are describing and foretelling a hostile future event in our world that includes a large-scale abduction. Uh, Jesus claims in Matthew 24, 8, that these are only the beginning of sorrows or birth pains, as he uh, put it. So why would ETs want to come to this planet in mass? It could be that they are coming here because the natural resources of their home world have become depleted, leaving it incapable of supporting the infrastructure of their civilization, thus forcing them to migrate here, more or less as interstellar refugees. Um, that would be problematic for the human race, since it would put an environmental political and economic demand on our world and that would overwhelm us. As we know, Earth is already experiencing a population boom that is stretching the limits uh, on the management of our own natural resources. You know, that kind of reminds me of that uh, Netflix movie that was uh, it's called Bright. It starred uh, Will Smith. And I guess it was uh, based off of that old movie from 1998 or 88, it became a TV series called Alien Nation. Um, and I, th I think, uh, uh, I mean, can you, can you imagine? I, I think one of them was, oh, yeah. So I think the uh, aliens became cops or something like that, or they were able to be cop yeah. become cops. So, I mean, can you imagine that happening, Joe? Like you being assigned a, an alien partner from another planet. And uh, you, I, mean, I can imagine you calling me every night complaining about how nuts this guy is. I can see your face now with Joe Landry, uh, meet Officer Darlock. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be honest. I haven't seen the remake. I, I do remember the the uh, film Alienation from 1988 uh, with James Caan, but uh, I'll have to check that one out on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, it was all right. Um, but, uh, I mean, the other possibility is that they are coming here because, like you said, maybe their planet is trashed or 
you know, maybe they just want to spread out into the universe and explore just like we do. And they intend to share their technology with us. I guess we would do the same. Um, perhaps they truly do want to help us out in our progression to become a more advanced species and, and their ambition and purpose for coming here is purely benevolent. They could just desire to see us evolve enough so that we can be ready to join the order of the brotherhood of the peaceful life forms of the galaxy. <laughs> and thirdly, it's, they didn't want to eat us. <laughs> Yeah, that too, or just uh, blow us to bits for fun, like in Mars Attacks. <laughs> <laughs> right, so two of the three possible scenarios for their arrival are not good ones, is uh, to come and be bums on our planet by leeching off of our resources, or just to conquer and, and have their way with us. So there's a decent probability that this first contact, if it is indeed an invasion, isn't going to work out well for us. And really... If the stories of the Bible and of all of our mythologies are nothing more than stories of ETs visiting the Earth a long time ago, as postulated by the ancient astronaut theory, then we're in trouble. Um, in those literary accounts from antiquity, humans are not at the top of the food chain, and they pretty much show us as being completely at the, their mercy. The deities of our religions, as we've even to this day, have the power to do anything they want. So if those deities are aliens... And then certainly many of them are not benevolent. And this also leads us to wonder if this will be a first contact or a recontact from an earlier period of time. I say recontact because if we consider the possibility that contacts with the gods thousands of years ago were extraterrestrial first contacts with each civilization. So I guess you can say that it would be first contact for us, the civilization of today, but for them, the alien gods, it's recontact. So the thing is, the Anunnaki may already be en route back to us. Uh, we just don't know exactly when they'll get here. Um, well, the government might know for, you know, I don't know. <laughs> the, uh, the same may go for any other alien civilization that knows about us. Uh, they may have located our pale blue dot hundreds of years ago. Uh, could it be that the Oumuamua asteroid discovered back in 2017 was a probe that was launched hundreds of years ago to take reconnaissance photos for a closer view of our world? Um, the way that thing came into our solar system from above and looped past our planet still gives me chills. Um, that just seems to be like it was under intelligent control and mathematically precise calculations were used to project its flyby at the right time which convinces them or convinces us that there's a much bigger fish in the sea and it's already headed our way. You know, we also have to consider the idea of a higher consciousness, um, something like the Akashic record, uh, which we talked about before, uh, that being a sort of collective unconscious or uh, a universal soul manifested as the quantum changes uh, in the electromagnetic background of the cosmos, which some neuropsychologists uh, do believe may have something to do with the aspects of our higher mental functioning, uh, like extrasensory perception. What I mean by this is, what if the whole fascination that we have with looking up to the stars is because of something innate within us, something we learned in the remote past because something big happened up there and something big came down to us from up there. And it could be that the reason our imaginations take us to this schema has something to do with our deeply sublimated archetypes, symbols that relate this collective unconscious to our creative thinking. 
since we now have so much uh, literature and so many motion pictures and TV shows about alien contact, maybe on some level we will not be all that surprised if it does happen. And if we look at the religious texts from around the world and review them from a different perspective, that being that deities are nothing more than flesh and blood extraterrestrials who return. And again, it will be a first contact. Or, I mean, will it be a first contact or will it be a recontact? In other words, is our history documentation of a previous extraterrestrial first contact? And the very same humans who in these mythical stories slaughtered other humans at the command of a so-called deity, were they also ones who figured out a way to defeat them? If so, then perhaps there is hope. Perhaps uh, standing united as a species and we could just stop fighting each other, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we need all the help we can get to fight this future evasion, I'll tell you that. I think by reading the book of Revelation, not from the viewpoint of religious dogma, but instead by looking at it as referring to an extraterrestrial first contact, you, you see that it actually fits structurally more than it does with any kind of theological concept. Exactly. The, the book of Revelation may simply be a warning to future generations to be ready. Uh, it mentions how a great war will come and how a third part of the earth will be destroyed. Now, some may scoff at the Bible, but you know, we really shouldn't. Um, can, consider how it could be that you know, someone from 2,000 years ago gives such a vivid imagery of things, and, 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 and they can be so descriptive in, in his writing, talking about John the Revelator, um, even including a comprehensive timeline as to each event that unfolds one after each other, such, such that even when we read today, find it to be significant enough to examine closely. If, if, if we read these old writings from a physical perspective and not a doctrinal one, then most assuredly we are headed for a scary time. Yeah, and the Bible does have an uncanny scientific accuracy in some parts, not all parts, but in some parts. Um, Consider how in Revelation 8, uh, 11, when the third angel blows his trumpet and a third of the waters turn bitter from a falling star called wormwood. Um, wormwood is not a star. It is an herb oil from the plant Artemisia, uh, which gets its name from the Greek word apinthos, uh, used metaphorically to mean something with a bitter taste. It is also where we get the word absinthe, uh, the drink that actually contains wormwood. So it seems like what John was describing was a meteorite hitting the ground and it dis with it destroying a third of everything and making the water taste very nasty. Uh, could it be he was talking about the water becoming contaminated from the presence of an alien spacecraft, like from a, a chemical exhaust, like a chemical exhaust trail? Again, the ancient writers misunderstood anything that was beyond their grasp to explain within the lexicon and scientific knowledge base of their time. Right. And ironically, so many religious people don't believe there will ever be or ever could be something like uh, an alien arrival, even though they've been preaching about the second coming and the rapture for quite a long time now, which is nothing but a mass invasion and a mass abduction. Um, they like to say they are ready to be taken away, but only them, no one else, uh, because they are righteous and they believe in Jesus Christ. However, I don't think the aliens, if they're the Anunnaki or otherwise, are not going to be so selective. Uh, this will be a mass disappearance of people, regardless of religious beliefs, nationality, race, disability, or sexual orientation. 
if they collect a harvest of humans to take back to their planet Nibiru, they won't see us as anything other than abductees. They will take us no matter what we look like or what we believe in. But for that matter, we may be taken to a very beautiful world and taught amazing things or to be put in a uh, scripture way to to go where we will worship God forever. <laughs> or, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, dogmatically speaking, uh, people may be ready, um, but it will not be so when aliens arrive. Um, people can talk tough about how nothing phases them. Uh, we see that kind of verbal posturing with a lot of keyboard warriors out there, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but when thrust into a, a reality never before encountered, you know, when beholding sights and sounds that could only have once been imagined, when witnessing the world morph right in before your eyes in a way that can't be comprehended, I think we're all going to be stunned and, and, and be in a, in a catatonic state. <laughs> we're going to be mesmerized. Um, we could be completely overwhelmed before we're even able to gather the cognitive power to organize a thought or articulate a word as to what it is we're really experiencing. Even the late astrophysicist Stephen Hawking wasn't too optimistic about first contact with aliens. He once said, someday we might receive a signal from a planet like this, but we should be wary of answering back. Meeting an advanced civilization could be like Native Americans encountering Columbus. That didn't turn out so well. And Laurie, I think we can agree that no matter what, actual first contact with an alien intelligence is going to be quite disruptive to the human existence. Uh, even if it is just an intercepted radio signal from a world that is light years from us, the psychological impact will alter the way we interact with one another. Uh, some people will deny it is happening altogether. Some people will say it is the Lord. Uh, some people will want to fight. And others will see it as the natural order of things and simply resign to fate. But whether or not we're ready for first contact is an irrelevant, uh, irrelevant issue. If it is going to happen, it is going to happen regardless of our readiness. We are no more politically, socially, or mentally set for it, for it than were the people of Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD. Uh, even if there are warning signs and deductive clues, humans tend not to prepare very well for cataclysmic changes, but we do adapt. So it may not be a question of if we're ready, but how we cope and survive when it does occur. And indeed, our history tells just that, uh, how we endure colossal changes by adapting to them and continuing on. So whether or not it will impact us positively or negatively, um, we do not use the terms first contact loosely. Um, or we do use the term first contact loosely, I should say, uh, since it is really not our first contact. Uh, it may be for us in this modern era, uh, but it is not the first for the human race. Uh, as for us being ready for it, well, you know, the fact that there are and always have been so many people of faith throughout the world uh, may very well mean that on some level, we uh, always have been ready. And that is it for today. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed the show and that we picked your interests a little bit. And we hope it wasn't too much of a downer for anybody. <laughs> um, certainly talking about anything apocalyptic can have a depressing tone to it. Yeah, for sure. Even with the best intentions, uh, you know, procrastinating, uh, procrastinating the end of days never gives a, a rosy picture of things. But for our next episode, Joe and I are going to have a guest on with us. So we're pretty excited about that. And that's right. Uh, Lori, we have had guests on a couple of times. Uh, it's been almost a year now, back when we had Mike and Ryan on 
to, to share their experiences with, um, with Mormonism and to help describe how they, there may be significant extraterrestrial connotations to it. Um, but it has been a while. So, yeah, it will be nice to have another voice on the show to take part in our discussion. Yeah, definitely. And, and we'll be taking or talking with someone who provided us with a testimony of his sighting of a bright orb in the sky right here in Arizona. And, and that, with, and, and that with, uh, will be the topic for next time, which will be about orbs and balls of light, which in some cases are a little different than flying disc of uh, flying craft. Um, we'll get into that more when we come back on June 12th. So be sure to tune in and, and join us for that one. It should be a, a very interesting episode. I'm looking forward to it. So we want to wish everyone in the States a happy Memorial Day weekend. And after this discussion of uh, alien invasion, we leave you with the you, euphoric words of the Zoroastrians. Remember, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Everything will be fine, folks. Just stay curious. Indeed, it, it will be fine. Uh, humankind has a way of prevailing. So until next time, uh, happy Memorial Day. Um, you know, thank, thank, I'd like to, we'd like to thank all the service members, the veterans for your, uh, for your service. And everyone have a safe couple of weeks. And if any of you get a chance, let us know on Facebook how you like our new logo design. Um, we've been getting good feedback so far. So we would love to uh, get your feedback on that. So take care now.